A word of caution. This episode contains depictions of domestic violence and murder that may be difficult for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised for anyone under the age of 13. A young high school student is found murdered in Western North Carolina in 1981, and the main suspect is a prominent older man in the community. What would lead a person with no prior record to murder? More than 30 years later, in an unrelated case, a woman from the same area disappears, leaving a three-month-old daughter behind. Her husband claims to have no knowledge of where she went, but her family knew otherwise. We'll also discuss a mysterious disappearance of a young mom from Greensboro, North Carolina last month. Her family is convinced two people who were last seen with the woman know more than they are saying, but there is still no sign of her. There is much to love about North and South Carolina, but the two states have also had their fair share of violent and senseless crimes over the years. From murders on the Blue Ridge Parkway, in the heart of big cities or sleepy college towns, and along the coastal waters, some of these stories may be new to you. Some may have happened in your town. Some may involve people that are still missing to this day. But all will leave you remembering to always be vigilant about the people you meet and the places you go. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Episode 85, Denise Durham, Shelby Wilkie, and Marissa Carmichael. Pamela Denise Durham, known as Denise to her friends, was a 16-year-old high school student at East Henderson High School. She lived in East Flat Rock, North Carolina. According to an article that ran in the February 15, 1981 edition of the Asheville Citizen Times, Denise was a model student. She was the secretary of the student council, an honors program student, and a band member who played the clarinet. Her life was going smoothly until Saturday, February 7, 1981, when that life was cut short. The body of Denise Durham was discovered by Henderson County deputies around 10.30 a.m. that Saturday, just a few miles from the Carl Sandburg home. It was found in a residential area in the East Flat Rock area off of Treeholm Road. Her body was sprawled 150 feet away from her car, whose engine was running, and the doors were still wide open. Two gunshot wounds were found after further inspection of the body. Police reports indicate Denise was shot twice in her car at close range, and then she collapsed after getting out and trying to go for help. She was face down on the ground and covered with a blanket. The primary question investigators now had to piece together was, who did this and why? It turns out that the answer wasn't hard to find. In fact, only four hours later, at 2.30 p.m. on Saturday, February 7th, two men were arrested for her murder. Wilton Clary and Richard Amico. Wilton Clary was the gunman. Richard Amico, the accomplice. Wilton Clary was 64 at the time of the arrest. He was a former Broadway star who had performed in Oklahoma and The Desert Song, as well as Three Wishes of Jamie. Clary had moved with his wife to Hendersonville 10 years prior to the incident and was reported as being significantly involved with the community. He had shared his musical talents with the Hendersonville Symphony and was active in the local Humane Society, where his wife served as the president. He used his musical theater background to open his vocal school, a school that Denise Durham enrolled in as one of his first students. This is where the connection between the two was built. What's interesting is that before this account, Clary's record was spotless. 
It seemed not even a traffic ticket was linked to him, before or during this time in Hendersonville. What could have led this well-liked former star to commit such an act on one of his students? According to statements made by Wilton Clary after he was taken into custody, the relationship between teacher and student had started to evolve. In Clary's statement to the State Bureau of Investigation, he referred to Denise as his girlfriend. A court file provided by Leonard Lowe, the district attorney of Rutherfordton, North Carolina, stated that Clary was worried about how this relationship would hurt his reputation and business if it was made public. This seemed plausible, but people who knew Clary, like Barbara Saunders, scorned the theory. Saunders was the manager of Flat Rock Playhouse, a local theater in town. She knew Clary well, as he often performed in the Playhouse Theater. Saunders reported that only a few years prior, Clary had built an expensive home. As a former Broadway star who owned an expensive house, performed free at events around the town, and volunteered part-time at East Henderson High School, income wouldn't be something that drove him to murder. So the question of motive still stood. 39-year-old Richard Amico pleaded guilty to being an accessory after the fact in the murder of Denise. He told police that on February 7th, he and Wilton Clary met Denise in the parking lot of Henderson County Memorial Hospital and followed her in a van to the Flat Rock area of the county. There, after putting on gloves, Clary shot Denise with a 38 caliber pistol while she sat behind the wheel of her car. Amico was hiding behind a seat in Clary's van. He did not have the money to meet his $50,000 bail requirement. Once Wilton Clary was arrested, a district court judge set his bond at $50,000. He and his wife, Jeannie, quickly posted bond by putting up their house for collateral. According to an article that ran in the Asheville Citizen Times on February 15, 1981, tempers flared in the community once he was released. Petitions began circulating, asking that a person who was charged with first-degree murder not be released on bond. Thirty of Denise's classmates protested in front of the county courthouse. It wasn't long before Clary was brought back to jail because Denise's father, Robert, had named Clary in a wrongful death lawsuit. This civil lawsuit had asked that Clary be held in jail in lieu of $500,000 bond until the trial. Richard Amico was not named in the suit. The clerk of court granted the bail request and Wilton Clary was sent back to jail after being out for about 48 hours. Why was Richard Amico even with Wilton Clary on that day? It seems like a case of unfortunate circumstances. A woman had purchased an antique trunk from the Wolf and Purr thrift shop in downtown Hendersonville, where Wilton Clary was working, because it benefited the Humane Society. She asked that it be delivered to her house on the Saturday Denise was murdered. Clary secured a van from the thrift shop and asked Amico, who had once worked with him at a local business, to help him deliver the trunk. It was on the way to deliver the trunk that they met up with Denise. The trunk was never delivered and was still found in the van when police arrested Clary. Amico's wife later told the media that her husband was innocent and that he had only been helping Clary to deliver the trunk from the thrift store. On April 27, 1981, the trial of Wilton Clary commenced. He pled guilty to first-degree murder. The judge had authorized the use of one of his earliest statements in the prosecution, which he made during his arrest on February 7th, the day of the murder. Clary told one of the officers on the scene that killing Denise was the only way out, cementing his guilt. 
Henderson County Sheriff Albert Jackson testified that Clary admitted he shot Denise because she was bugging the hell out of him and wanted Clary to leave his wife for her. The judge sentenced Clary to life in prison. The motive solidified as one of romantic conflict. He shot her to get his freedom back, but ironically, it caged him instead. Clary was transferred from Caledonia Prison to the Lottie Correctional Institution for Older Felons in Florida, something that caused much controversy. The backlash from Denise's friends and family was so intense that James Hunt, the governor of North Carolina at the time, investigated the charges that Clary was given preferential treatment in prison. He found many serious errors with this transfer. However, Ray McNamara, director of the State Bureau of Prisons, interjected. She stated that the fast transfer from prison to prison was not because of any sort of corruption, but because of the age and heart problems of Wilton Clary. He was moved to the Florida institution to be closer to his wife. These heart problems would soon lead to a dramatic end to this story. On August 25, 1985, Clary performed a singing solo for the other inmates during worship. He had just finished when he suddenly collapsed from a heart attack. He died that day after only four years of imprisonment. It looks like Richard Amico might have been released from prison after only serving a few years. Denise Durham was a bright high school student with her whole future ahead of her, but a conflict between her and music teacher Wilton Clary would ultimately lead to her demise. Was this really the consequence of a tragic love story? Without Denise's side, we may never be sure. I had a few questions that ran through my mind when I read about this case. To my knowledge, Denise's family has never spoken publicly about the murder of their daughter. Was there really a romantic relationship between Denise and Wilton Clary? Did the man have a previous track record of being involved with his vocal students? What did his wife think of his arrest and confession? We may never know the answers to any of those questions. What we do know is that something made Clary feel so trapped that he saw only one way to escape by getting rid of Denise. Yet this didn't lead to Clary's freedom. He too met his demise and learned what it is truly like to be trapped. I want to talk next about another Hendersonville resident who went missing in 2012. According to the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, a study put together by the U.S. Department of Justice stated that with men who have killed their wives, either threats of separation or actual separations were most often the precipitating events that led to the murder. Unfortunately, the case of Shelby Sprouse Wilkie falls under this category. Shelby Wilkie was a 38-year-old professional and mother of a three-month-old daughter living in the Hendersonville, Asheville area when she was reported missing on January 2, 2012. Her husband, Michael, said she had left for work that morning and never returned. He even left several messages on her voicemail at her office expressing his concern about not hearing from her all day. But Shelby's parents had grown concerned the day before she was officially reported missing because Shelby was close to her mother, Barbara, and they talked on the phone almost daily. They had seen Shelby and her husband, Michael, that weekend. But when she texted her daughter on the evening of January 1st and asked if she was okay, only a one-word reply, yes, came back. Barbara later told the media that a one-word response was not something Shelby would typically send. Shelby's parents had a reason to be concerned for their daughter. What the police would soon learn was that Shelby was secretly planning to leave her husband and had even leased a house in nearby Black Mountain to move into with her infant daughter. 
Her father and brother were going to help her move her things while her husband was at work on a night shift. They knew she had been planning to tell Michael on New Year's Day. She wouldn't have left without trying to take her daughter, Sydney. Shelby Sprouse had met Michael Wilkie a few years earlier through a dating website. The divorced father of a young daughter impressed her with his chivalrous manners and responsible attitude. He was born and raised in western North Carolina and had worked at the same manufacturing plant for most of his adult life, and he owned his own home. Shelby had a bubbly personality and truly believed in the institution of marriage, according to her family. After only a few months of dating, Michael proposed to Shelby and they were married on October 10, 2010. But according to court records and interviews with her family, Michael's true personality came out as soon as they were married. During an argument, he blocked her from leaving the house, damaged her car door, and tried to yank her wedding rings off her finger. Shaken, she filed a restraining order against him the next day, but according to her family, he begged for her forgiveness until she agreed to drop the charges. But Shelby's friends and family knew things weren't getting any better. They could tell her husband was trying to isolate her. He refused to set up a joint bank account and even insisted she pay for her own food when they went out for meals. Shelby came into work at the Asheville Radio Group, where she was an assistant business manager, with bruises she tried to hide. According to an article that ran in the Times News in Hendersonville, the couple had another serious fight about six months into their marriage, where he tried to restrain her from leaving the house and took the phone away from her to prevent her from calling 911. She filed another restraining order, but ultimately made the decision to drop that one too, because she discovered she was pregnant and wanted to make the marriage work for the sake of their child. Not long after Sydney was born, Shelby had to face facts that Michael was not the man she thought he was, and she could not live with his volatile temper and mood swings. She hired an attorney to draw up a separation agreement and secretly leased the home in Black Mountain in November of 2011. She quietly continued to live with Michael, go to work, and raise Sydney until she could tell him she was leaving at the first of the year. But Shelby Wilkie disappeared right around the time she was planning to share the news with Michael. And she had told him, according to her mother. But he obviously tried to change her mind, possibly citing their young daughter, or maybe even threatening to fight her for full custody. And she told her mom on New Year's Day that she would try and work things out with him yet again. However, later that night, she texted Barbara saying, things have taken a turn for the worst. He's trying to steal my rings. I am trying to keep things calm. I still need dad and the boys to move me out. After that text, no one in her family could reach her, and the strange one-word text response came from Shelby's phone. Michael tried to tell police and her family that she had gone to work on January 2nd, but that was a designated holiday for the Asheville Radio Group, so she wouldn't have been going into work. When she didn't show up on January 3rd, concerned co-workers called Shelby's family. Michael Wilkie told police she had been suffering from postpartum depression and that he was worried for her safety. He even went on the local news begging for Shelby to return, holding their daughter. But if you look closely at the footage, he wouldn't make eye contact with the camera and there were visible scratches on his face. A few days after she was reported missing, Shelby's car, a black 2012 Ford Escape, was found in the parking lot of the JNS cafeteria across from the Asheville Regional Airport. 
By that time, the five radio stations belonging to the Asheville Radio Group were running announcements about Shelby's disappearance and asking listeners to keep an eye out for her. The local sheriff's office asked the Henderson County Rescue Squad to search a park nearby for Shelby, along with the French Broad River and Westfelt River Park. These searches turned up no sign of Shelby. But police were already zeroing in on Michael Wilkie, knowing more about his wife's disappearance than he was letting on. Neighbors of the couple reported that they had returned home late on the night of January 1st to see a concerning fire raging in a burn barrel in the Wilkie's backyard. They saw a man with a flashlight tending to the fire and making multiple trips back and forth from the house to place things in the fire. They assumed the man was Michael, and since he was keeping an eye on the fire, they went about their evening. Investigators executed a search warrant on the Wilkie home on January 4, 2012. Although on the surface everything looked normal in the home, forensics tests using luminol and phenothaline were positive for a large amount of blood in the home, including extensive blood spatter, pooling, and drag marks. In fact, they were shocked to see what appeared to be a silhouette of a human body slumped and leaning against a wall. Shelby's wedding rings were found on top of the refrigerator. They also found a large burned area in the backyard. On January 5th, after an additional search in the surrounding woods at the home of Michael's parents in Hendersonville, police discovered a 55-gallon barrel with ashes they believed to be the remains of Shelby Wilkie. When confronted with this information, Michael Wilkley quickly changed his story, claiming Shelby had killed herself in their home using Ambien and that he had watched her cut her own wrists in their bathtub. He said he didn't call police because of the past incidents of domestic violence with his previous wife and Shelby, and instead he decided to give her the cremation she had wanted instead of calling 911. He was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. His trial began in January of 2015. Before we continue, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. True crime is more popular than ever, thanks to documentaries, podcasts, and media outlets that produce gripping crime stories. This is great news for writers wanting to explore this market. Crime narratives are not only compelling for consumers, but they can also help find justice for victims, their families, and the community. In fiction, using true crime elements and journalistic techniques can help deepen the storyline and add authenticity to characters and plot. Do you enjoy reading and consuming true crime content and would love to find a way to write and publish your own? In a webinar I'll be teaching through WOW Women on Writing this spring, I'll share how to find story ideas, how you can use true crime elements in nonfiction and fiction, where to pitch your true crime work, and more. You also have an opportunity to send an article outline or project pitch to me for feedback. The webinar will take place on March 14, 2024 from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and will be recorded for those who can't attend in person. The cost is only $45 and there are a limited number of spots, so register today at wow-womenonwriting.com and click on the Classes tab. I'm a huge fan of the skincare products by SkinX Erin. You've heard me talk about them before. I use their pre-cleanse oil, hydrating beauty oil, and perfecting night oil each day, and I swear my skin looks at least 10 years younger. I love that these products don't leave my skin feeling greasy and are loaded with squalene oil and vitamins E and A. 
Plus, they are extremely affordable, their customer service can't be beat, and the positive affirmations they include in the packaging are so uplifting. This week, SkinX Aaron is running a special Galentine's Day sale, and as a brand ambassador, my discount code MISSINGCAROLINAS10 will get you 16% off the oils and $12 off a skincare starter kit. This code is good until February 11th, so don't delay. Treat yourself. I'll include a link in the show notes for you. And now, let's get back to the show. At the trial, even more horrifying details of what Shelby's life with Michael was like came out. Just nine days after their wedding in 2010, Michael took Shelby's dog and left him on the side of Highway 25. The fight that followed that revelation was the one that resulted in Shelby's first attempt at a restraining order. He was charged with assault on a female five months later after another argument where he tried to prevent her from calling 911. He was ordered to attend a program for anger management. Following another argument after their daughter Sydney was born, Shelby once again tried to leave the home, but he wouldn't let her have the baby. She called her brother for help, but when he arrived, Michael wouldn't let Shelby have their daughter. He called 911 and told dispatch that Shelby was intoxicated and trying to take their child. When police came to the home, a breathalyzer showed that she was not intoxicated and she was allowed to leave the home with Sydney and her brother. When she went to the courthouse to file another restraining order the next day, her request was denied. She tried to call the anger management program Michael had just completed to tell them what had happened, but it didn't help. This was when Shelby knew she had no choice but to quietly take action. She had planned to pawn the wedding rings Michael was always trying to take off her finger to get some extra cash. Michael's second wife, Amanda, had also experienced a similar pattern of behavior with Michael and left their home secretly in 1995, just like Shelby had been planning on doing. She shared her story on the episode of 2020 that aired about Shelby's case a few years ago. Michael had also abused Amanda while she was pregnant with their daughter. Shelby had tried to call Amanda shortly before she went missing, saying she wanted to ask a few questions about her marriage to Michael. Amanda told Shelby that she would be happy to talk to her, but she had been on her way to an appointment and asked Shelby to call her back. That call never came, and the next thing she knew, Michael was on the news asking for help in finding Shelby. In fact, Amanda said when she first heard about Shelby going missing, she assumed the woman had secretly left Michael as well. Michael must have figured out Shelby was planning to leave him because he requested emergency vacation time from his employer in Fletcher on December 30th before Shelby had talked to him about the separation. He had plans to be off until January 11th, and it appears Shelby had not known about that leave since she was planning to move out of the home while he he was at work. Michael was caught on surveillance video at the Asheville airport, dropping Shelby's car off in the parking lot across the street and then getting into a cab. It was Shelby's father who first went to the police to report his daughter missing. And when they went out to the Wilkie home to do a safety check, Michael told them she had gone to work and not returned home. Forensic testing was never able to conclusively determine whether the contents of the 55-gallon drum found on the property of Michael's parents contained Shelby's DNA. They did find the charred remains of a Tiffany bracelet Shelby's mom identified as one she had given Shelby along with Shelby's sister-in-law. Another interesting fact about this case was that the Hendersonville District Attorney, Greg Newman, was personally familiar with Shelby Wilkie before he prosecuted this case. 
she had hired him while he was still in private practice to help facilitate her separation. So he was fully aware of the environment Shelby had been living in and why she had grown so fearful of her husband. In late January of 2015, a jury deliberated only 30 minutes before finding Michael Wilkie guilty of the first-degree murder of Shelby Wilkie. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Shelby's family told the news media they wanted to participate in the 2020 episode about her titled New Year's Day because they wanted to help spread awareness about how quickly domestic violence can escalate. I personally have an old friend who worked with Shelby Wilkie at Asheville Radio Group at the time she went missing, and I remember back in 2012 when he and his co-workers were spreading the news about Shelby's disappearance on social media. I'm sure they all suspected her husband must have been behind it, and they were all heartbroken when all the facts came to light. When hearing about a case like this, it's easy for someone on the outside looking in to say, why did she stay all that time? Why didn't she just leave? Michael Wilkie was very manipulative and knew how to say the right things to Shelby to make her stay. His second wife, Amanda, confirmed the same thing. Shelby and Michael had a child together, and he used that child to threaten Shelby and convince her to stay even before Sydney was born. This statement from the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence helped shed light on what Shelby was going through. A victim's reasons for staying with their abusers are extremely complex and, in most cases, are based on the reality that their abuser will follow through with the threats they have used to keep them trapped. The abuser will hurt or kill them, they will hurt or kill the kids, they will win custody of the children, they will harm or kill pets or others, they will ruin their victim financially, the list goes on and on. The website offers the following tips for victims of domestic violence who are seeking support and they suggest creating a personalized safety plan, because although you can't control an abuser's use of violence, you can plan how you will respond to future abusive or violent incidents, prepare for the possibility of an incident happening, and plan how to get to safety. It is your decision if and when you tell others that you have been abused, or if you think you are still at risk. Friends, family, and coworkers can help with your safety plan if they are aware of the situation and want to help. Visit www.ncadv.org personalized safety plan to learn more. I would like to talk about Marissa K. Carmichael next. This young mother of five went missing from Greensboro, North Carolina under suspicious circumstances on January 24th of this year, and her family is still searching for her. I had seen this story on multiple news outlets, including national ones, so I wanted to share it in today's episode. The 25-year-old had spent the night out at a nightclub in downtown Greensboro when she called 911 from an Exxon gas station on East Market Street at around 3.40 a.m. Marissa said the person she was with told her to go into the store to buy some items, and while she was inside, they threw her things out of the car and left. However, her cell phone remained in the car. She told 911 she wasn't sure where in Greensboro she was even at. Around 40 minutes later, when a police officer arrived at the gas station to check on her, she was gone. The store clerk said she had gotten a ride with someone else. This leads me to believe maybe the people she was with came back for her, but I'm not positive on that. There is a missing persons flyer being distributed by Marissa's family that has photos of two men they think she was with around the time she went missing. I won't name them here, but if you search on social media for her name, you can see the flyer. 
Her mother, Sarah, doesn't believe her daughter, who has five children under the age of 10, one of whom has special needs, would disappear on her own. Marissa was last seen wearing a white t-shirt with a large colorful flower on the front, light blue jeans, and yellow SpongeBob Nike sneakers. She was wearing hoop earrings and has her hair in black and blonde braids. She is a biracial female with brown eyes, stands 5 feet 4 inches tall, and weighs around 230 pounds. Anyone with information on the whereabouts of Marissa Carmichael is asked to call the Greensboro-Guilford Crime Stoppers at 336-373-1000. This brings us to the conclusion of this episode of Missing in the Carolinas. Special thanks to Aaron Settlemeyer, who wrote the segment about Pamela Denise Durham. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're also now on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. Do you know of a missing persons case in North or South Carolina that you think should be covered? Email me at missinginthecarolinas at gmail.com with any details you can share. Don't forget to check out our sponsor, WOW Women on Writing, and the great programs and writing contests they have to support writers at wow-womenonwriting.com. Treat yourself to a skincare kit from SkinX Aaron with my code, MissingCarolinas10. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. Sound editing provided by Daniel Robertson. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.